thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say physics, medicine, nature, or space, time, the brain, life, the universe. Hello, this week, the power of computer simulations. And we're asking, are we all living inside one? Plus, in the news, making diabetes treatment smarter? Diagnosis by an electronic doctor, would you be comfortable with that? And the world's first robot that can pick lettuces. I'm Adam Murphy. I'm Chris Smith. And this is The Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. First this week, people with diabetes cannot make enough of the hormone insulin, which controls blood sugar levels. In type 1 diabetes, the body cannot make any insulin at all, and instead the hormone has to be injected through the skin in varying amounts tailored to mealtimes and what someone is eating. Now though, scientists in the US have developed a sugar-sensitive molecule that works like an insulin sponge, dispensing insulin automatically into the bloodstream whenever blood sugar levels climb. Mark Evans, who's a diabetes specialist at Addenbrooke's Hospital in Cambridge but wasn't himself involved in the research, took a look at the study for us. So this is one of a group of approaches which people refer to as smart insulins. They've taken standard insulin that we already use to treat diabetes and they've combined it with a polymer, so a large molecule, a bit like a ball of wool, which soaks up the insulin and then can release it. The particular polymer they've chosen is boronic acid, which binds and responds to changes in glucose and sugar levels. So by tinkering about with this, they've rather neatly been able to come up with a formulation which means that the polymer is glucose responsive. So in other words, this ball of wool is able to react to sugar, change its charge and release more insulin when it's exactly the time it's needed. So in other words, when the local glucose levels are higher. And equally importantly, it's, it's able to release less insulin than when glucose levels are lower. At the moment, a person who is diabetic would need to tailor how much insulin they have in their body that they inject in order to match what they anticipate, say their meal is going to deliver, or their activity. So this would, would release them from some of that, wouldn't it? It would mean that, that the, the molecules doing the work of calculating how much insulin to release rather than them. Absolutely. It'll certainly help. The life of somebody with diabetes, particularly, let's say, with type 1 diabetes, is challenging, and they spend their whole time chasing their tail, doing lots of blood glucose testing and and trying to catch up with ups and downs. And the hope is that something like this will at least help to, let's say, shave off some of the ups and fill in some of the valleys in, in daily blood glucose levels. What's the evidence this technique actually works? So they've tested their system in mice and in pigs with type 1 diabetes under conditions of artificial glucose loads, essentially giving a slug of glucose and delivering either this insulin or regular insulin. They've also in mice done a a slightly longer term study over a couple of weeks or so of of twice daily injections and does seem to work at least better than the control insulin that they gave under the particular experimental conditions they tested this under. How is this new smart insulin actually administered? Is it injected in the same way that traditional insulin that a diabetic is familiar with is given? Yes, so they delivered this by injection in these studies. At the moment, insulin has to be delivered across the skin of the body in some way, shape or form, whether that's by injection or increasingly we've got people treated with insulin pumps, which are devices which pump insulin continuously under the skin. So this 
new approach would probably substitute in for the existing insulins, but it would be delivered in the same way, so by injection or infusion under the skin. You mentioned that it's the glucose going into this polymer, which then causes it to release or or squirt out the insulin so you match how much insulin you produce to how much glucose is there but could any other molecules accidentally do that so you could unfortunately trigger a big surge of insulin when you don't need it because something's tripped the molecule into releasing it inappropriately yeah no absolutely that's a great question that's one of the you know that one of the questions that arises out of this is how specific is that polymer for glucose as opposed to other non-glucose sugars things like fructose and things which occur naturally for example in in fruit so this is all part of the work that they're going to have to do to really to, to, to nail this before they're able to move into human studies and so they can pull it off what are the implications for a person with diabetes? Because we can, we can manage diabetes pretty well in this day and age, can't we? You, you can use pumps, you can use injections to keep people well. Yeah, the way in which as a clinician I would see this being used is as a, an alternative to the insulin that people are currently using, but actually used in the same way. And I think what it'll do is hopefully help smooth out some of the ups and downs in daily blood glucose levels. And that will translate into a health benefit? Absolutely, yeah. If people get less variable and more predictable blood glucose levels, one, we think that the variability in glucose itself may be important in terms of risk of complications. But two, of course, if people have got less variability, they may be more confident to drive blood glucose levels lower, which reduces long-term risk of, of complications. Thanks to Mark Evans for taking Chris through that research, published this week in the journal Science Advances by UCLA scientist Zhen Gu. Now, around the world, more and more people are living into old age, and that's putting increasing pressure on health services, and patients complain that they can't get appointments. In poorer countries, meanwhile, people might have to walk some 20 miles or so just to get to a clinic before they've even seen a doctor. The answer, we're increasingly being told by people like Matt Hancock, the UK's health minister, lies in technology, including so-called electronic doctors that use AI or artificial intelligence to make diagnoses. So is this a realistic prospect? Well, with us to discuss this, a tech entrepreneur, Peter Cowley, and intensive care consultant and specialist in medical data science at Cambridge University, Ari Urkol. So welcome to both of you. Peter, first of all, What's actually behind these AI systems? How do they work? Yes, okay. So AI, artificial intelligence, should not be confused with the intelligence that human beings have. Uh, It's been the term, the letters AI have been rather taken by the uh, tech community and overused. Something like 60% of all AI startups apparently in the UK are not using AI at all. They're using algorithms still. So what should be used is machine learning and deep learning. It's all about taking data and deriving outputs from that. And a couple of examples, certainly in the medical field, these chatbots, which you can start to use now in, in the UK and other countries, where the computer system will be asking questions, not voiced at the moment, though maybe when the smart speakers come online, but they'll be asking questions with text to the point where it's trying to derive what the problem is, then pass you on and, and signpost you back to a human GP or whatever, and learning from that. That would be within a, a primary care setting and then in a secondary care using uh, machine learning of images, whether that's moles that are growing on, on your skin or some sort of scan, perhaps of the lung, and using that data from the past, from, from data from medical records and the data it's learning from communicating interactive to give an output of some form. But Ari, bringing you in, this is all about data. Do we have enough data in order to teach these things so they're intelligent from the get-go? I think this is really the time uh, for, for data science in medicine. So we've always generated a huge amount of data from healthcare, from looking after patients. But in the past, this has been unstructured. It's been on paper notes. And, and actually, from a clinician's point of view, a lot of it was just sort of lost and you just wouldn't have access to it. Increasingly now, the, the data is uh, being represented in electronic health records and we're going to see those spreading over all of healthcare. And actually, now I think we have the reverse problem. We have too much data that even the clinicians can't really appreciate and, and know what to do with properly. 
Will this bear fruit, though, assuming that it plays out the way that Peter's outlining? Are we, are we actually going to see tractable, tangible medical benefit from systems like this, or is this just hot air? No, I think it will, but I think we need to be quite careful about exactly how we apply these sorts of technologies. So it may well be that in the future that we can replace doctors with computers, but we'll have to ask ourselves if that's really playing to the strength of the technology. So computers are very good and they never get sick, they don't get bored, they don't need lunch breaks, and they can just do things repetitively in the same way every single time unlike human beings. But what human beings are very good at is dealing with uncertainty and being flexible about things. So it seems to me that we should be applying these technologies to do the drudgery take away that work from clinicians and actually free them to make the best informed decisions, the best use of the data, make the data as salient as possible, but actually do the human part of the the clinical practice. Peter, most people don't want to deal with a machine, though. They actually relish the human contact that comes with, say, a GP appointment. That's absolutely true when you've got that ability to do that. But bear in mind that a huge amount of the world has not got that access. If you take the global south, the developing world, I don't know what the number of uh, primary care GPs per head is, but I think it's 100x less and they may be a very long distance away. So don't just assume that we're sitting in this sort of nice, we're sitting here in Cambridge in this nice bubble and and, um, that it's not possible. But if you take the developed world, yes, many people would want to be in front of a human being when they're discussing something. But, you know, I'm obviously a bit older, you can tell the millennials are more and more wanting to be able to communicate in a way that's quick, convenient, so you don't have to travel, you don't have to wait around, you don't have to book something when you can't do it, and get some sort of diagnosis or beginnings of a diagnosis what's going wrong. These systems will not send you a prescription yet for a drug. They will refer you on if necessary, or more likely say, don't worry about it, don't be so cyberchondriac, as they say. <laughs> Comfortable with that, Ari? Would you be comfortable as an active practicing doctor to have patients being seen by these sorts of systems? Is this safe? I think at the moment we're probably not quite at that point in terms of actually making real decisions. I think the actual decision making is probably still firmly within the the grasp of the clinician. But that doesn't mean that there aren't massive opportunities from these kinds of technologies to assist the clinicians and actually improve availability of healthcare in, in that way instead. One of the criticisms though peter maybe you can answer this is this whole question about data security because on the one hand we're saying these systems are driven by data but that depends on people being willing to share their data and if people don't trust data holders and we've had a lot of examples of this going wrong in recent years and people are becoming very data aware now it could stumble at the first time. Yeah, I mean, there's two initial issues. One is the explicit and implicit use of data. If you actually sign something off, at least you've got a choice. But there is data out there that's probably being implicitly used without your choice. And then there's a level of anonymization. If you've got a very rare disease in a particular location, then difficult to make anonymized. But if you're a general member of the population, anonymization's easy. And again, but in the end, it comes down to trust. Personally, and you know, I'm pretty technophile here. I think the data will lead to better outcomes in time. I think, and I know there'll be doctors listening to this, I th- there are misdiagnoses going on. And if that could be reduced in time, you know, which I believe it can be, we might be looking 10 or 20 years out, it will be beneficial to the population. So it all depends on one's view. In the end, it, we've had this conversation many times, Chris, over the last four years. If you don't like being tracked, don't switch on a smartphone. <laughs> don't use tech. Last question, Ari, in 15 seconds, who gets sued? Uh, that's a very good question, and we don't really know. At the end of the day, at the moment, it's still me. So uh, yeah. <laughs> you, you take responsibility of the whole of Adam Rook's I, hospital? I'm afraid I, I'm afraid I do, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you both very much indeed, Ari Urkel and Peter Cowley. Hi, Katie, how are you? I'm pretty snug, to be honest. <laughs> Quite cosy in here. The Naked Neuroscience podcast explores the workings of the brain and the nervous system in our bodies and beyond. It does not mean that you need to be sophisticated on an instrument. You can just hack on the piano. Wow, so I can legitimately tell my friends to shut up because <laughs> I've just passed my driving test. You have my blessing, yeah. Do you want to know who you are? Can we actually understand how we think? From lifting the lid on consciousness to remembering how to forget, join me, Katie Haler, each month as we make connections with scientists and spark up conversations on the latest neuroscience news. Listen and download for free at nakedscientists.com forward slash neuroscience or subscribe to Naked Neuroscience wherever you get your podcasts.
On the way, how scientists simulate our universe on a computer, and could we be living in the Matrix? Well, regardless of whether we are or not, we still need to eat. And automation has unarguably revolutionised the farming industry. But some crops, like lettuces, have resolutely refused to be picked in any way other than by hand. But now that might be about to change with the help of a new robot. Heather Jameson has been to the Cambridge University Engineering Department to hear how. Billions of lettuces are produced globally every year, and every one has been picked by hand. Whilst harvesting of other crops, such as wheat and potatoes, has for a long time been automated, lettuces have so far eluded automation for various reasons. Firstly, lettuces are very easily damaged, and supermarkets have very high standards for what they will accept. Secondly, if you imagine looking out at a field of lettuces, all you see is a sea of leaves. It's actually very difficult to pick out individual lettuces, even for humans. But now, engineers at Cambridge University have developed a robot which they believe is up to the task. At the end of a large robotic arm, the robot has a square cage, big enough for a football. And the cage does the cutting and collecting. The robot also has two cameras to see the lettuces. Simon Birrell showed me how it worked. So this cage that you see, this what we call the end effector at the end of the robot arm, this goes down over the top of the lettuce. At the top we have a valve attached to compressed air. So when the robot decides it's time to grasp, it activates the valve and this soft gripper, which is covered in silicone, comes over and grabs the lettuce and it grabs it gently so that it doesn't bruise it. And then the valve is activated again and this rotary belt goes round and it drives this blade down here through the stalk of the lettuce and goes through and gives it a clean cut. But before the robot picks the lettuce, it first has to find it in the confusing sea of leaves and then decide whether the lettuce is good for harvesting. The robot has been trained to identify the lettuces using neural networks. A neural network is a computer system which is inspired by the way the human brain works. It classifies the lettuce into good, suitable for harvesting now, immature, which is a lettuce that we'll come back for later when it's grown a bit, and a diseased lettuce. And it's very important not to pick a diseased lettuce because if you do, you can contaminate the end effector and then when you move it to the next lettuce, you run the risk of spreading mildew or whatever the infection is. At the moment, the cutting process is not intelligent. It's a pre-programmed process. But in future, the engineers would like the robot to also be able to learn to cut more accurately as well. The supermarkets are extremely picky about what the cut looks like. So the cut can't be too close to the lettuce head, it can't be too far away, it's got to be at 90 degrees. All of this is nonsense in many ways. I mean, the lettuce still tastes exactly the same. But yes, we are interested in adding neural networks so that it can learn the best way to cut and continuously improve the way it does it. The team have tested the robot in the field, literally in a field of lettuces. The robot sits on a rig powered by a generator and the wheels roll between the rows of lettuces. Conditions are totally different from the lab. You have wind, you have dust, you get rained on, everything is bumpy so that all the equipment gets knocked around a lot. So all the kind of fine-tuned calibration that you do in the lab is completely useless out in the field. In the test, the robot successfully located the lettuces 91% of the time and successfully classified them 82% of the time. In terms of speed, the robot is currently about four times slower at picking lettuces than a human, but Simon reckons they can easily reduce this difference by changing to a stronger robotic arm. The current arm moves quite slowly because the cage is quite heavy. But whilst the robot will be able to take over the physical demands of harvesting, there will still be a role for humans to play. There's always going to be a place for humans in terms of maintaining the robots, in terms of managing the robots. Particularly if we do learning, one of the things we're considering is having people monitoring remotely a series of robots through video feeds. If they see the robot making a mistake, they can call that out and that data then gets incorporated and retrained into the, the next iteration of the neural network. And if you're worried about the robots taking over... Simon kindly pointed out to me that the cage was the perfect size for cutting off human heads. But he hasn't tested this theory out. 
Well, let us hope it stays that way. Thank you very much to Heather Jamieson and the work on the robot that she was discussing with Simon Burrell was published in the Journal of Field Robotics. Well, from salad now to another rather surprising plant, a giant agave plant at the Cambridge University Botanic Garden is preparing to flower for the first time in 57 years. It belongs to the asparagus family and the first hint of the flower appeared on the 19th of June. Since then, in the past week, the flower spike has been growing a whopping 10 centimetres every day. Alex Summers from the Botanical Garden is here to tell us more. So Alex, what kind of plant are we talking about here? It's a tequila type thing, isn't it? Yeah, so tequila uh, as a drink is actually fermented from sap taken from agave, a different species to the one we're growing here. We do grow agave tequiliana. um, And as you said, it takes them a long time to reach the point of flowering. If we were growing it to make tequila, we'd actually cut off this flower spike because we want to, to get it as large as possible and then we take all the leaves off and it's actually the, the central crown structure that's actually uh, baked and then fermented to produce the drink. What does it look like? What, what would people see if they went? They'd see a, a large rosette of leaves. So imagine a dandelion with very, very thick leaves and then amplify that up to about two or three metres in size and then you'll be thinking about the sort of rosette that you're looking at with our current agave that's about to flower now. And then the structure coming out the top of it stands now at about 3.4 metres. So that's a metre above me, at least. <laughs> it's absolutely huge, yeah. So it's, it's well set for being in that desert environment where it really wants to advertise those flowers to as wide array of pollinators as it can. And why is it doing this now? Why is it behaving like this? Good question. So we've had this since the 1960s and it would have been planted in the house it currently sits in now about 10 years ago. Prior to that, it would have spent most of its life in a pot. So probably what's happened is whilst it was in a pot, the restricted root run meant that it didn't reach a size at which it could do what it's doing now, which is putting that flower up. So the agave is a plant which comes from deserts. And so what it does is over its life, it builds up those limited resources until a point at which it can send up a massive flower spike. So whilst it was sat in our back reserve houses, it never reached that point. When it was planted out and it had the space, it's, it's now quickly... Uh, reach the point at which it can flower and post that it'll die. And so there'll be no plant left, it'll just be gone? It's an interesting one. What can happen is it can reproduce vegetatively, so it can produce little offsets or pups, but its main aim is to produce lots and lots of seed. Do any other plants grow this fast or is this special? It's one of those situations where this plant's been putting a lot of energy and time into producing that flower structure in the very centre of the rosette. But there are many other plants that are able to quickly increase their size like that. So if you come at the moment, we've got our very large Victoria water lilies and those pads are up and increase in size over the course of a couple of days. Alex, can I just ask you a question? Because if this can defer flowering like this until the time is right for that particular plant, isn't that a bit of a high-risk strategy? Because if you want to have sex with another plant, you need another plant to be flowering at the same time. And if they're all over the place in the desert and they've got a really ad hoc process like this, where most plants solve that problem by all flowering at the same time, this is not going to happen. I wouldn't say plants always solve that problem by flowering at the same time. I I think that what you actually see in situations is plants have a fantastic opportunity, unlike us, which is they usually produce male and female parts. So what it can do is it can self. It doesn't want to self. You're absolutely right. Self-pollinate. Yeah, the pollen can produce seed from the same plant. That's not always the case. But in the case of something like this... It's obviously working on the the situation that it grows in a massive environment. And probably one of the drivers of evolution is that it is a huge ecosystem, which means that there is a likelihood that it's going to be in flower at the same time as another. It's also setting up so it can present itself to organisms which are able to travel long distances. And that's why it presents itself probably at such a large size. Alex Summers, thanks very much. Now, if you stop someone in the street or or even on the most remote part of Earth, perhaps where there are some of these tequila-producing agave plants growing, and you started trying to communicate with them, the interaction would probably involve a lot of pointing and gesticulating as you both attempted to get your points across. Surprisingly, we've probably got our baby selves to thank for the fact that we can do this, as Ankita and Urban heard from Kahalo Madigan. Pointing is the universal language. If we're on holiday somewhere and we don't speak the language, most of us will resort to pointing and smiling to try and communicate with other people. In fact, pointing is one of the first things that babies learn to do. 
what's remarkable about pointing gestures is that we use them to coordinate attention. So when you point something out to somebody, you are looking at the object typically and you get them to look at it and then you look at each other and you acknowledge, hey, look at that, isn't that interesting? This is crucial for our all sorts of human cooperative interaction. Infants all over the world develop pointing gestures in exactly the same way at around the same age. So is pointing a special human trait? Or do other animals also point? Other animals don't point spontaneously. Apes, our closest genetic cousins, are chimpanzees. They can be trained to point and to understand imperative pointing. This is where you point in order to get something handed to you, for example. But they don't do this spontaneously, and in fact they have a very hard time understanding informative pointing. And this is remarkable because adult apes are so much smarter than nine-month-old infants. But nine-month-old infants understand this immediately. So when we point at something, what is it that we're doing? What we found was that rather than pointing gestures working like arrows, people produce pointing gestures as if they are reaching their hands out to quote-unquote virtually touch an object in their field of view. So we tested this by looking at the angle of the index finger in a pointing gesture. Most people intuitively think that when you produce a pointing gesture, you stretch your index finger out as an arrow that's directed at the object that you're pointing at. But we found that, in fact, often the angle or the arrow that stretches out from your index finger leads nowhere near the object that you're referring to. But instead, if you photograph somebody from the side while they're pointing at something and you draw a line from their eye through their fingertip, this line will very accurately pick out the thing that they are referring to. And this suggests that there's some fundamental connection between pointing and touch. And, of course, uh, for us, it suggests that pointing may originate in touch. In addition to producing pointing gestures at this funny angle, we also rotate our wrists when we're pointing at things that are around a corner, for example. So you imagine if there's a label on a bottle of wine oriented to the right. If you're asked to point at it, you might find yourself rotating your wrist clockwise so that the touchpad of your finger is oriented to match the surface of the thing that you're pointing at, just as you would if you were reaching out to touch the label. And if you rotate the bottle around in the other direction so that the label is facing to the left, you might find, if you're pointing with your right hand, that you'll rotate your hand in a quite awkward movement, anti-clockwise, but again, just in the way that you would if you were trying to reach out to touch that label. But why would pointing be related to touch? Surely, when we point at the moon, we're not trying to touch it. So what we think is happening is that infants are exploring their environment by touching objects that they're paying visual attention to. Uh, They're looking at, let's say, an interesting toy, and they're poking it with their index finger to see what it feels like. Parents then pay visual attention to what the infants are touching. So they discover that they can get their parents to pay attention to things by touching them. They then extend to objects further away from them, so they make as if to touch things in the distance. And their parents then look at the object in the distance, uh, looking for the thing that the infant is trying to touch. And this is the, the origin of the pointing gesture. Well, it makes sense that babies are always trying to get our attention. And it seems to work. So not only do we all know how to point, we can also all interpret other people pointing very effectively. So what's the takeaway message of all this? The pointing gesture originates in the coordination of visual attention with touch-based exploration. And this tells us something about the development of the pointing gesture within our lifetime in early infancy. But you can imagine that it also suggests a story about the evolution of this gesture and of human coordination that humans as a species seem to take real advantage of. Kahala Madigan getting his point across very clearly to Ankita and Urban. That study is in the journal Science Advances. And if you'd like to follow up on any of the stories we've been discussing this week, there are going to be transcripts, the individual chapters and podcasts themselves, and the references to the papers on our website. That's thenakedscientist.com. It's time to open up the Naked Scientist mailbox this week. And Alicia has gotten in touch via Twitter. She says, Hey, Naked Scientists, I've been wondering, where do carnivores get their vitamins from? Chris, can you help Alicia out? I probably can, actually, Adam. The answer is that... Many of these animals that exclusively eat meat, in other words, big cats, things like that, they actually, unlike us, can make some of these vitamins that we can't. We are dependent on fruits and vegetables to give us vitamin C, for example. But this is because way back in history, for various reasons, we lost the ability to make a functional copy of a gene, which is called L-galonolactone oxidase. And this is the rate-limiting step in the synthesis of vitamin C ascorbic acid. So if you don't have a working copy of that gene, then you can't make any vitamin C. Now humans, 
other primates, surprisingly guinea pigs and some bats, are in the same boat as us. They have to rely on their nutrition to get vitamin C into their bodies. But other animals, they can make vitamin C. Now, the other point to bear in mind is that there are lots of vitamins in raw meat. We actually boil a lot of them off by cooking the meat. So we then have to rely on other sources to get ours. Big cats don't cook their food. They eat it raw. So many of these vitamins are still there in enriched quantities so they can get their things that way. So it's a combination of some of the things they can make and some because they're eating their meat raw. Meat does contain a lot of good stuff in it, including liver, for example. You can get your vitamins from that source. So all in all, they end up okay. The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire. Cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound, perfect music for audio and video productions. And this week... We're asking... Are we all living in the Matrix? Is everything around us real, or could it have been created by a computer? And if so, why would that be, and how could this happen? In today's show, we're exploring the science of simulation. Heather Jameson. We humans are a curious bunch. Throughout the eons, we've been striving to improve our understanding of the world around us. And over the last few decades, we've developed a really powerful tool to help us achieve this. Computer simulations. We use computer simulations across all branches of science and engineering, from aerodynamics to design better cars and planes, to climate models to better understand the effects of global warming. Some people even believe that we might actually be living in a computer simulation. In 2003, philosopher Nick Bostrom proposed the simulation argument. The argument goes like this. Imagine a super advanced civilization with immense computing power. If we assume that they had the same thirst for knowledge and understanding of their world as us, then they would probably put that computing power to the task of simulating a whole universe inside their supercomputers for the purpose of research. In fact, they might simulate lots of different universes to understand what differences small changes make. Then what if the simulated civilizations also attain the ability to run their own simulations? Well, then we've got simulations within simulations... And quickly, the number of simulations vastly outnumbers the one actual reality. If that were true, then there could potentially be billions of simulated universes and only one real universe. So in that case, statistically, we are very unlikely to be living in the one real universe. Wow, it's a lot to get your head round. Especially because I just don't feel like I am a simulation. How would you go about simulating a universe anyway? Well, to try and answer this question, I spoke to Nick Hendon from Cambridge University Institute of Astronomy to find out how cosmologists use computer simulations to improve our understanding of the universe. Nick showed me a computer-simulated video of a cluster of galaxies forming. The colours represented temperature, with red at the cold end of the scale, going through blue to green and then to white at the hot end. At the beginning of the video, the space is filled by a red gas... So what you're seeing at the beginning with all that red material is fairly cold gas and it's almost uniformly distributed, but it's not quite. The red gas formed into a 3D web, a bit like candy floss. Then bright blue spots started appearing in the web. There are some areas with more gas than others and the extra gravity of those regions pulls gas from the less dense regions in towards it. The bright spots grew larger into clouds of greenish-white gas. The regions that are most dense with gas start to grow, and as gas collapses onto those regions, the gas heats up because the pressure is increasing. The individual clouds of gas gradually merged together to form larger clouds, until eventually the scene was dominated by large clouds of greenish-white gas, with specks of red gas in the dark spaces in between. It looked just like what I've seen in science fiction films. But how is a simulation like this produced? Well, first, you tell the computer to simulate a very large box. A box that is hundreds of millions of light years across. And you fill the simulated box with particles. Those particles represent mainly gas and dark matter. 
This is mostly the gas that was around in the very early stages of the universe. So that's about three quarters hydrogen and one quarter helium. And then you apply the physical laws such as gravity and the laws of motion that describe the fluid motions of the gas. And you also add additional processes such as star formation, black hole physics and various other physical processes that are important for the formation of realistic galaxies. But the universe isn't a box. So what does the computer do at the edges? The way they get around this problem is by setting it up so that when a particle goes out of the right-hand side, it re-enters on the left side. In other words, you pretend that the box is replicated on all sides. This works pretty well, as long as the box is large enough. But how do cosmologists know that their simulations are accurate representations of reality? You can mimic observations with your simulation, so you could pretend, if I took my telescope and looked at my simulation, what would I see? And then you compare that to what we actually see on the real sky. And if they match, then you know that you've done a reasonably good job in creating a realistic simulation. If we look at a distant galaxy with a telescope, we are actually looking back in time. That is because the light from those galaxies takes time to reach us. The further away we look, the further back in time we are looking. So if we look really far, we can see what galaxies looked like shortly after the Big Bang. If we look less far away, we can see different galaxies at a different point in time, but we can't watch individual galaxies evolve. But with simulations, we can fill in the gaps. How far can we turn back the clock with these simulations? Can we simulate the Big Bang? With these sets of simulations, we typically start in the early universe, somewhere around 300,000 years after the Big Bang, which is not very long at all in astronomy terms. And in fact, if we were to go back all the way to the Big Bang, at some point, the laws of physics would essentially break down, in which case the simulations would be no good anyway. So it seems that computer simulations are helping cosmologists to answer some of life's most fundamental questions. And finally, as someone who is in the business of simulating the universe, does Nick think that we might be living in the Matrix? I think it's definitely possible. I think that with simulations, the sorts of simulations that we do, the computational power has increased hugely over the past sort of two, three decades. And so it's easy to imagine that if that rate continues, one can imagine that eventually it'll be possible to simulate a universe that is indistinguishable from our own. And in that case, it seems somewhat arrogant to assume that we are not in one of those simulations run by some future race. <laughs> it's a scary prospect, isn't it? Nick Hendon ending that report by Heather Jameson. And if you go onto our Twitter feed, at Naked Scientists, Heather is going to post a video where you can see a simulation of galaxies forming. Do you think we're living in a simulation? Are you one of the group of people who think that? I mean, you've got to play the odds, chances are, yeah. Well, we run a Twitter poll on this, and it seems actually that quite a few people out there agree with Nick, because 28% of respondents to our poll said they thought we, we could be living in a simulation. The majority of people, though, thought it was a ridiculous notion, 38%, but quite a few, 34%, were just sitting on the fence. That's a lot of fence sitting, but mm. who knows? But if all of this seems just a bit abstract, let's look at an example of one of the most powerful computer simulations that affects every single one of us every single day. The weather forecast. Chris Bell is a forecaster from WeatherQuest and lecturer from the University of East Anglia, and he's with us to explain how this happens. So Chris, how do you predict tomorrow's weather or even next week's or next month's? Well, it starts with observation, so you can't make a good uh, prediction of the weather uh, without observing the weather correctly, and that's one of the biggest challenges, actually, in terms of getting a weather forecast correct. So uh, we first take every bit of uh, weather observations we can get. That goes for the traditional weather stations that we would see at the ground to offshore observations from ships and airplanes as well in the sky, weather balloons, and also from satellites, increasingly so from satellites, actually. Uh, and all of this data is fed back into computer simulations and that's really how we uh, we forecast the weather. What's the simulation actually doing to spit out the forecast? So we know generally the equations of the atmosphere in terms of how moisture and temperature and, and air moves around in the atmosphere from basic physics equations and you can put those physics equations into these big computer models and 
input the data that we observe into those equations and run them out for an hour and see what the answer is and then run them for another hour and see what the answer is and then so on and so on and you can go out to computer models go out for a couple of weeks and some out to a couple of months uh, and, and as you know climate models are simulating weather uh, all the way out for uh, for several decades. Now when I look at the weather app on my phone it can say something like a 50% chance of rain but what does that number mean? Is it like a coin flip whether it'll rain or not? <laughs> that is a good question uh, and in fact uh, more and more people nowadays are getting their weather forecast from these mobile phone apps and one of the things about that is so there's two different ways you could come up with a percentage uh, in a mobile phone app for a weather forecast. One of them can be you can take a computer model and there are areas of the atmosphere and, and around the earth that we don't know the actual weather observation for. So we have to estimate using what we do know. And so if you tweak those estimations just slightly, so for example, maybe there's an area south of Iceland uh, and out to the to the southeast of Greenland where we don't have observations and you tweak the, uh, the, the estimations you make just slightly, it can have a big impact on the forecast um, out several days in advance. So you do these tweaks and you run the same computer model over and over and over, maybe 50 times, and then you have a whole solution of possibilities out to uh, day one, even to day you know, 15 in advance. And you can use that to, if your question is, is it going to rain? Uh, you can see how many of those computer models are forecasting it to rain. Uh, and, and then that's how you get your answer for percentage. The other way of doing it is to look at how much rain is around your area in the computer model. And if all of the grid points around your area are covered with rain, then that's a high chance of rain. And if only one or two of them are, then you've got a lower percentage. How good are our predictions of weather and why is it important other than making sure my barbecue doesn't get rained on? Say back in the 1950s and 60s when uh, weather forecasters used to sit down and draw up a weather chart and then they would see new observations come in and they would draw up another weather chart and they would do that hour after hour and they would look at those weather charts and they would project how the different weather systems were moving and they would use that to make their forecast and when they do that they would be lucky to get the weather forecast right more than a day or two in advance because you simply didn't have all the information that we do nowadays but obviously with the uh, invention of weather satellites um, we can see clouds moving we can input that data into these big computers models that we have now and it allows us to make um, uh, weather forecasts from much further in advance and also expect more from the accuracy of the weather forecast. So I would say nowadays uh, getting the forecast right uh, two to three days in advance you should be able to almost do that to an hourly time step um, you know to get within a couple of degrees of the temperature and wind speed and whether it's raining on that hour or not. Obviously that can be affected a lot by whatever weather pattern you're in but um, three or four days fairly accurate accurately to the hour. Beyond that, there starts to be the uncertainty that creeps in. And once you get past about seven to 10 days out, uh, things start to get much more tricky. And why is it important to have that level of accuracy? Well, I mean, you have lots of big organizations making massive decisions uh, on the weather. So let's just take an example of maybe uh, a port, for example. So uh, there might be um, a strong wind event coming up that uh, keeps uh, the cranes from being able to operate. So that has an impact on the ships that are offshore that are coming to that port, the lorries that are coming from the different um, distribution places within the, the country to the port to pick up the goods coming from the ships. And if a port can and know that there's a disruptive spell of weather coming, say, five or six days in advance that might shut down their operations for 24 hours, being able to adjust what they do uh, leading up to that can make a big difference. And um, that's the kind of things that, uh, that that big companies are doing to try to minimize their, their loss in terms of uh, costings from a weather forecast. Now, despite all your hard work, the weather forecast isn't always right. So how might we improve predictions in the future? Yeah, that's a really good question because we are starting to see that computer models are, are you know, getting much, much quicker. Um, we are having more and more data that we're putting into them, but actually we're having fewer and fewer weather observations from the surface of the Earth and more uh, reliance on satellites. So I think that's probably the, the way forward in future is to improve our 
uh, ability to monitor the weather from a satellite because it's still quite difficult for a satellite to see through the atmosphere so it can have a good idea of what the temperatures are at the cloud tops and what the temperatures are at the surface of the earth but seeing what's happening in between is, is quite difficult for a satellite to do and uh, we're constantly improving the ability to do that and I think that's probably the way forward. Uh, that combined with something else that was mentioned in the show, uh, machine learning. So I think machine learning is another thing that's going to be happening in the future for weather forecasting. So you look at loads of different weather variables, wind, temperature, pressure, uh, pressure anomalies, and that sort of thing. And you uh, put all that data into a machine and let it come up with the solution rather than the traditional style of weather forecasting where you're running a bunch of equations. Chris Bell from WeatherQuest, thank you very much. On the way, how do huskies keep cool in the summer when they have such big furry coats? Stay tuned. Before that, though, we are looking this week at how computers can create simulations to discover how things work or even whether it's going to rain tomorrow, as we've just been hearing. We can also do this for bits of the body to speed up the development of new therapies or the discovery of new drugs. Katie Haler heard how Oxford University's Elisa Passini is doing just this for the human heart. What we do is to build computer model of the human heart to understand more about how the heart works and what can be done to improve diagnosis and therapies for patients. We are very interested in what is called drug safety. So not really in drug discovery when people try to develop a drug that can treat a specific disease, but after that when they need to check that the drug is safe for the heart. And this applies to any drug. All drugs on the market need to be tested on the heart and we can do the test on our model. I see. So before a drug goes into a human heart, you want to make sure that it's safe. And of course, you can't do that by testing it on a human heart. You need to have a model. Exactly. So what is done currently is animal testing. And then if a drug results safe in animal testing, it goes through clinical trials. But we would like to go even before this animal testing and use our computer models, which are human based, to try and predict early on what would be the effect on our patient. You might have an early candidate put it through your model and say, "Uh uh-uh, this is not going any further. So they test, let's say, 10 candidates with our models. They see which is the best one and then they move forward. But instead of testing all 10, they make a selection before based on our results to reduce the animal experiments down the line. That's also one of our aim. We are really interested in contributing to a reduction of these experiments. So tell me about these models then. How on earth do you build something on a computer as complex as a human heart? You need to do experiments to understand what's going on inside the cell, all the little process, all the little particles moving, and you write that as equations. So in the end, our models are a sum of mathematical equations that represent the behaviour of a human cardiac cell. And what kinds of features of these cells or the bits in the cells do these equations model? Are they how they're behaving, how they're moving? What, what are you looking at? It's more the electrical activity we are interested in. And this is because the cardiac side effects when taking drugs is usually an arrhythmia, which is an irregular rhythm of the heart and is due to the electrical activity. So what we study is the iron that are moving in and out the cell through ion channels. So our equation model, these ion channels and the little particle moving in and out that produce currents. So these are things like what, potassium? Yeah, sodium, calcium. So we go from the subcellular level to the cellular level. And then we can also put many cells together and get to a tissue or an organ level. Wow. And all of that is being portrayed in terms of equations. That's a lot of equations. Yes. (laughs) So now you've got this model. How good is it? Uh, So I would say it's really good. (laughs) What we have done is some evaluation studies with drugs that are already known, because first we need to prove to pharma companies, for example, that these models work. So we took drugs that were on the market or they were withdrawn from the market because they had side effects for the heart. We tested this drug and we predicted the risk or safety with almost 90% accuracy. The thing is, not all hearts are the same. Maybe things like age might be a factor. So What kind of heart are you building? Is this a a generic heart or are you factoring in variation? 
until I would say 2010, what was used in computer models of cardiac cell was mostly an average model. So we had one model of the heart that was sort of representing everyone. So what the method we developed is a sort of random generation of cells based on the idea that we are all similar. So, of course, cardiac cell will have the same mechanisms inside, but, for example, I might have more potassium channels than another person or sodium channel or calcium channel, and we can model this by assuming a sort of random variability of these ion channels in the membrane. So, looking ahead then, could this actually be used in future to make a very specific individual model of a heart, for instance, if you're trying to diagnose a potential condition in someone? We would like to get there, and we actually started some works in this respect. What we do is we collaborate with hospitals, and from them we can get images from patients and data about, for example, a genetic mutation or a specific disease. From the images of the patient, we can get the geometry of the heart of these patients, and then we can incorporate our models into patient-specific geometry. And for example, if someone had a heart attack or has a scar in the heart as a result of this heart attack, then we can include the scar and see what a drug would do to improve his heart conditions or what drug wouldn't be safe because of this scar, for example. How much precedent is there for computer modelling different parts of the body? Have other people done it for you know, kidneys, liver, lungs, other organs? Uh, yes, definitely there are models, for example, of bones and muscles. As for organs, I would say the heart is quite advanced compared to the other, and this is because it's been around for like 60 years. So there are people doing modelling of kidney, gastrointestinal system, neurons. So yeah, th- there are lots of people working on computer models of human human body and physiology. And the idea is in the near future, maybe we'll get to a point of having a whole virtual human all simulated. Elisa Pacini there speaking to Katie Haler. That is amazing technology. But we can do this only because of the huge leap in computing power that's occurred in the past few decades. And to tell us how this has been achieved and why it could be about to get even more powerful, we have Cambridge University computer scientist Alex Chadwick with us. Alex, welcome. How much more powerful is your average computer now than, say, three decades ago? Yeah, so I think between uh, 1970 and the early 2000s, I think computers got a thousand times faster, which just for context, if planes had done the same thing, we'd now be able to fly from London to New York in 28 seconds. So, uh... <laughs> And what did it take to realise that? Well, the biggest thing driving this is actually not really computer scientists. Um, I think the most fundamental reason for the advance is because uh, electronic components could be made that were uh, smaller and faster and cheaper. It's really weird as a computer scientist, what you could do is you could design a processor and then two years later, you could use the latest component and it would be twice as fast, half the size and half the cost. This is Moore's law, isn't it? Where, exactly. where we, we see every X number of months a, a doubling in power and, and whatever. Exactly Usually right. the price as well. But <laughs> <laughs> yes. But where is this all going then? I mean, do, we're going to reach a point though, surely, where we can't improve with present technology any more than we have already. Yeah, so it's really interesting. Around the early 2000s, things started to change a little bit, actually, because um, what really went wrong, um, and there's a number of factors, but the biggest one probably is that when you have all these tiny components and they're getting faster and faster and you're cramming them into a small space, they get really hot. And actually, the trouble was, computers essentially, if you just kept making them faster and faster, they would start to melt. And so we no longer really could keep uh, making the computers faster. And so that's why computers actually haven't sort of numerically got any faster since the early 2000s. What's happened instead is we've realized that because the component's getting half the size, we can actually put two computers together in the same space we would previously have one. And so that's the concept you may have heard a dual core computer. That's when you essentially have two old computers, effectively, a core, stuck together. Although each of them are roughly the same speed as the previous computers, by working together, they can achieve results that are faster. I suppose, though, that in order to support having multiple cores, effectively multiple computers working together, you've got to have the right architecture inside the computer so that you can feed the instructions in and they're divvied up among those cores the right way to make those instructions get followed to produce something useful. Yes, and I think this is what sort of the, the has been changing in the last few years. thing is, when people first started putting multiple computers together, they more or less didn't think about that. They more or less just took two existing computers, bolted them together, 
uh, change nothing and expected that to do well. And for two, it kind of works. The trouble is sort of nowadays we're getting more and more computers stuck together. I think you can probably yeah, buy I mean, the, 16. The server that's running the Naked Scientist website has got some crazy number. It's like 24 cores. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. It's just amazing to think you can do that. They're really good individually, these cores, at uh, working on their own um, problems. And that's kind of what they were designed for. So that makes sense. But when you stick them together, it's like if you have, you know, multiple people working in a team, you know, they need to communicate and work together. And the more of them you have, actually, the more communication you have, you know, in a business with hundreds of employees, there's going to be people all the time in meetings, constantly coordinating. It's the same with computers. As we get to, you know, 24 cores or more, we have to communicate between them. Because you're working on something which is hopefully going to mean that they are less antisocial and they get on better these exactly. calls and communicate better. So is, is that the linchpin? We thought, what would we do differently if we were redesigning the core from scratch rather than just bolting existing ones together? Let's throw that design out the window and say, OK, what would we do differently today if knowing that the computers of the future will have many cores? And so... We have designed a sort of sociable core, if you like. Yes, so one that is capable of working together all the time. And so these cores are able to um, do computations at the same time sort of having a natter to their mates and sort of constantly talking about what is happening on the calculation and so on. Working together to solve the problem is sort of fundamental to the design. You know, like the, the internet and social media, I guess. You know, we have to have a network to communicate between them all. And how much faster will your architecture be? Very difficult to answer that question um, because essentially the individual cores are worse because as a trade-off for there's their... An over, there's an overhead exactly. because of the, the being exactly. more sociable, they get distracted more often. Presumably. Exactly, yes, they're all having a natter, exactly. So I think it really depends on the problem. So like in the previous um, interview, we heard about the heart simulation. So in that example, you can imagine each core sort of handling one cell of the heart and then having a natter about you know what's gonna, you know know what's what's happening to that cell to the next core. So I guess it's going to be a question then of, of actually writing software and systems that will exploit your system to make the most of it. Because if you take your system and just shove the present day operating environment at it, it's just not going to cope so well. But if you've got things written bespoke for it, it's going to do much better. Exactly. And the programmers really need to think in a different way to use it. And that's kind of what I'm personally researching. Alex, thank you very much for joining us. That's Alex Chadwick from the Cambridge University Computer Science Lab. And also our other guests this week, thank you to Chris Bell and Elisa Passini and Nick Hendon. And now to finish this week, it's time to step out of the sci-fi realm and into the animal kingdom for our question of the week. And Matthew Hall has been sweating over this one from Alex. I have several friends with huskies who claim that the thick fur of the dog protects them not only from the cold, but also from a hot summer's day as well. Could this possibly be true? Let's help out our animal lovers and get to the bottom of this hot topic. On the forum, we got a response from Evan, who thinks... Dogs often shed their hair when the seasons change, adopting a thicker, more insulating winter coat. That allows them to, quote, insulate themselves from the cold of winter and from the heat of a hot summer's day, end quote, but not in the same season. To turn up the heat on finding an answer, I combed through some professionals in insulation and found Christoph Schwening from Cambridge University. Well, your friends are right, Alex, but there is nothing very special about huskies. Insulation, and fur is a relatively good insulator, has the general property of reducing energy transfer across the insulating material in either direction, whether the temperature on one side is colder or hotter than the other. For example, insulation in the roof of a house will keep it warmer in winter and cooler in summer. Equally, insulation within a flask will help maintain the temperature of cold or hot liquids put into it. So by extension, an animal with a furry coat should lose less heat in cold conditions and gain less heat in a hot environment. That is, insulation helps to isolate the animal's own body temperature from the external environmental temperature. The problem here is that it conflicts with our own experience and simply extrapolating our physiology to other animals can be problematic. If you put on a thick winter jacket in the summer, you will rapidly overheat, especially if you do some exercise whilst wearing it. What is missing here is the difference between how dogs and humans regulate their body temperature in hot environments. Our main way of losing heat in warm conditions is through the evaporation of sweat from our skin. Putting insulation over the skin, or indeed just preventing air flowing over it, stops our ability to lose heat, and so we rapidly become too hot. 
In hot environments, dogs don't lose much heat by sweating. Like us, they do still lose heat by evaporating water. But that water loss arises through panting, and fur does not prevent that process. Dogs can also lose heat by lying down on a cold surface, and fur does not prevent that either. The animal's fur gets squashed flat and loses its insulation properties as the trapped air is pushed out of it. So in most mammals, fur does not interfere with active heat regulation. Instead, it helps isolate body temperature from a potentially changing external environment. And in this case, humans are the odd ones, because we rely mainly on sweating to keep us cool. It's a good thing the naked scientists don't have to worry about our sweat getting disturbed by clothes. Get excited, though, because our next question of the week from Monique is pretty sensational. Can you tell from a painting or a photo if it's sunrise or a sunset? What do you think? You can email chris at thenakedscientist.com, find us on Facebook, tweet at Naked Scientists, or join in the debate on the forum, thenakedscientist.com slash forum. And that's all we've got time for this week. Thanks to Heather Jamieson, who put the programme together. And do be sure to tune in next week when, 50 years since humanity first set foot on the moon, we're going to honour it with a special show all about Apollo 11 and the moon landings. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith. Thanks for listening, and until next time, goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.